about um, keeping you past the hour. Because why am I fixated on 4 o'clock? Because I'm afraid that some of you may not come back. <laughs> some of you may go, oh, this is too long. So 4 o'clock, we're going to be done one way or the other. Right, folks? Why did you back? Yeah, I know, work. but still. You want to maybe just go rest for a while. And sometimes I need to rest for a while. Anyway, um, How long I do have to announcement. Today. 55 minutes. Mm. But we'll, don't, not to worry, we'll get through everything. Uh, but I do want to make some quick announcements. Um, where's my announcements paper? Claudia, you're responsible for keeping my desk in order. <laughs> okay, I'm going to have to wing it. First of all, we just said uh, um, be reminded of our picnic tomorrow. Um, hoping to see as many of you there. Hoping to see each one and every one of you. And we, what time? 12? Yeah, we're yeah. saying, you know, start gathering around 12, 12 right? You know, I don't know. Every time doing. you get out of yeah. bed. Well. <laughs> Some people get out of bed late, honey. Yeah, so it's okay. It's I'll, okay. I'll remember this other stuff. So what that's it, right? The picnic tomorrow. Um, hope to see you all there. Some of you have not met uh, previously, and I'd love to do that, spend some time with you. Um, the other thing is just to mention uh, very quickly. Yeah, okay. Very quickly. Uh, next week, uh, Friday, which is September the 2nd, is our uh, monthly prayer meeting night, okay? Once again. Welcome one and welcome all to a, for a monthly prayer meeting on Friday night. It's just for an hour, 8 p.m. to 9 p.m. One hour where each and every one of us has an opportunity just to raise up our voice in one spirit, in one mind before Yah, so that His kingdom will come, His will will be done on this earth. Um, what else did I have to mention? Homeless ministry and... Um, yeah, homeless ministry. So just so folks, once again, we have started up our homeless ministry again. I don't know when um, uh, perhaps Joanna or Judith can give us an update on when you guys going out again. Obviously, it's not tomorrow. Perhaps maybe the next week. I don't know. But the thing is, whenever um, whenever they can tell us that the homeless ministry is going out again, anyone who want, anyone from our group or side of the group here who wants to go out with them and volunteer some time serving the people in our community serving God really basically that's what we're doing <laughs> right um, we're uh, let you know let us know ahead of time so that we can work you into some schedule of going down eventually we work into sometime in November where we go on our own see our group here goes on our own um, to do the homeless ministry and it's going to be midweek Wednesday afternoon is the day that we can uh, and to support all that, we need, uh, basically we need contributions because we have to buy stuff for the homeless folks, whether it be food or clothing or whatever their needs may be on the street. We want to be able to provide as much as that as we reasonably can. Your contributions are, are appreciated. Your contributions will be put to the work that you, you've designated to go to. All you have to do is to make an e-transfer to Shabbat Torah Study at gmail.com and it'll go into a special account that uh, Claudia and Joanna have set up where they will manage that money going in. Also, I just want to mention very quickly the food pantry. We started up the food pantry at CMY 
again, I got to talk to Lloyd about that because there was a little issue with that last time I was there. Um, anyway, uh, so the whole idea of the food pantry is to, uh, to have a store of some basic food supplies for uh, the times that we are anticipating some tough times are going to come. Some people may have a hard time, not all of us, some people have a hard time. And if there is a need in our immediate community or anyone, you know, outside the community, in fact, we will turn, you know, in this Torah portion here, it talks about, you know, giving a hand to your fellow Israelites. So that's our opportunity to do that. Store up something at the food pantry. Um, what we want is people buy a little bit extra when they go grocery shopping, put it in a grocery bag. And once a month or so, when Cheryl or, um, or Sharon lets us know, then we'll bring it to the show there or send it with somebody else. Okay? Um, what else? Oh, yeah, thanks. There's some folks who've contributed already to the homeless and to the uh, food pantry at that, uh, that account that I mentioned. So thank you for that. Okay? Um, that's it. Uh, we'll be there by 11 tomorrow, Dora. I'll be there by 11. And okay. I did change the lock in that room. Oh, you did? <laughs> thank you. Perfect. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you, sir. Okay, that's it. Let's do the teaching now uh, so we don't run too late. Hey, listen up. This is a good teaching. You know, have your pens and paper ready. Make some notes. We'll talk about it after, okay? So here we go with the teaching.
It's there. It's in full living color. Blunt and unequivocal. It's really a matter of whether or not we want to accept what it says. But be forewarned. We've not yet learned all the Bible has to say about holiness. Nor does holiness stand alone as an attribute of God. Other factors, like his omniscience, his justice, his love, his mercy, his salvation, his severity and wrath, to name just a few, they all played roles in his character. They all work together. God never acts one-dimensionally. That is, only in justice, or only in mercy, or only in wrath. But there is no way to understand each of these aspects of the of the Lord without untangling them, isolating, examining them as best we can. And while holiness is simply asserted as a fact in the New Testament, where we're going to find holiness explained, holiness defined, is in the Old Testament, primarily the Torah. Now, because of the era the church has been immersed in for almost 2,000 years, an era that I think is drawing to a close. The mission of the church has generally been to grow through evangelizing. And the job has been done overall quite well. Unfortunately, what seems to have suffered along the way is the maturation process of the individual believer. This is what Paul calls the perfecting of the saints. Those who wish to move forward into a deeper faith, greater knowledge of the Lord, haven't had a lot of encouragement or support. It's a little like a community with a burgeoning population that has focused on building excellent new state-of-the-art elementary schools for the children. But, has, but as the children have matriculated through each grade, so many resources were spent on the elementary level that the community neglected to build a high school. So at some point, there was no choice but to repeat the same educational material over and over and over. Perhaps in a slightly different form, maybe a little bit different style, but then it's declared that it's actually deeper enlightenment, even though it's always the same thing. The 15-year-old effectively sits in the same classroom with the 10-year-old, hearing the elementary school-level curriculum yet again. And the elementary material's not wrong. It's not defective. But neither does it challenge doesn't advance the child to the next natural level of maturity that's needed. And as applied to believers, this perfection process that Paul speaks of is stunted and we're held back. Yet graduating into higher education brings with it its own set of anxieties and problems. When we're children, the rules are pretty black and white, hard and fast, instructions are basic. There's not a lot of room allowed or tolerated for children to make value judgments on their own. Because first, the foundation must be well established for determining those values. Therefore, as most of us have already learned the basics of God's plan of salvation, who 
Yeshua is, what he expects of us, what seems to lie ahead in the future. It's natural for us to leave behind the comforts of knowing only the primary colors and turn our attention instead to the more difficult matters of the many hues and tones of our faith. The difficulty is that the black and white edges we were so used to begin to blur. The answers aren't always apparent and succinct. Faith is much easier in the black and white stage than it is as we advance. That is why it is said that we must first come to Christ in the beginning as little children. Willing to begin with the basics, accept them as truth, just as they are, not much explanation and even less questioning on our parts. But later, we are fully expected to embrace the struggle to advance in godly wisdom and understanding because it's this struggle that keeps us glued to God and moving forward. And in consideration of our current topic, holiness, we find it's a whole lot easier to just look holy than to be holy. The problem with holiness is that while it is intrinsic to God's character, certainly not to ours, humans are only truly holy when God is near and when he endows us with his holiness. Now, it's not as though some effort on our part to attain and maintain holiness is not needed. It is. But the effort is aimed mostly at trusting God, following his plan, not making our own way, devising our own rules. Korah, Datan, Aviram, and all their followers made a supreme effort to attain holiness. But the effort was in opposition to God's plan and to his commandments. Even though a measure of holiness was indeed attained, because God's holiness is so powerful that its mere proximity will automatically infect whatever is near him with holiness, it wasn't, ordained, wasn't attained in accordance with his plan. And as a consequence, God's attribute of his justice came into play. And according to God's justice, those rebels who attained this unauthorized holiness against his rules, against his ordinance, they felt his wrath. They were destroyed. On the other hand, the priests who had been set apart, had been authorized by God for holiness, they attained that holiness legitimately and therefore safely. We're going to veer away from the holiness topic for a time. And in Numbers chapter 19, we're going to find an intriguing discussion about a specific type of impurity and what to do about it. Now recall that impure and unclean is the same thing. So as we leave the issue of holiness, just keep this in mind. The 
holiness that is inside you is God. He put himself there. Further, that holiness can be defiled. The advent of Yeshua does not change how holiness operates. It's our job as disciples of Yeshua to see to it that his holiness that is housed within these, these frail, temporary, imperfect sanctuaries, tents that are our bodies, his holiness is protected. And the beginning of doing that is being open to learning what holiness actually is, according to the Bible, as opposed to doctrines of men. Now, because of the evangelical church's renewed interest in prophetic happenings in the end times, most of us have at least heard about the red heifer and of a group of Jews' constant search for a perfect one. This special red-colored cow is needed when the long Oak Ford Temple is rebuilt in Jerusalem. It's not a tradition. It is absolutely required. Here in Numbers is where the purpose and the details of that red pepper ritual are pronounced. Now, although we have to go through several verses of the ritual procedure before we get to its purpose, it turns out that it's all about decontaminating a person who has become unclean because they touched a human corpse. So, let's open our Bibles to Numbers chapter 19. We're going to read the whole chapter. Numbers 19, if you have a complete Jewish Bible, is page 171. Adonai said to Moses and Aaron, This is the regulation from the Torah which God has commanded. Tell the people of Israel to bring you a young red female cow without fault or defect and which is never born the yoke. You are to give it to Eleazar the Kohen the priest. It is to be brought outside the camp and slaughtered in front of him. Eleazar the priest is to take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle this blood towards the front of the tent of meeting seven times. The heifer is to be burned to ashes before his eyes. Its skin, meat, blood, and dung is to be burned to ashes. The Kohen is to take cedar wood, hyssop, and scarlet yarn and throw them onto the heifer as it's burning up. Then the uh, Kohen, the priest, is to wash his clothes and himself in water, after which he may re-enter the camp. But the priest will remain unclean until evening. The person who burned up the heifer is to wash his clothes and himself in water, but he will remain unclean until evening. A man who is clean is to collect the ashes of the heifer and store them outside the camp in a clean place. They are to be kept for the community of the people of Israel to prepare water for purification from sin. The one who collected the ashes of the heifer is to wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. For the people of Israel and for the foreigners staying with them, this will be a permanent regulation. Anyone who touches a corpse, no matter whose dead body it is, will be unclean for seven days. He must purify himself with these ashes on the third and seventh day, then he'll be clean. But if he does not purify himself the third and seventh days, he will not be clean. Anyone who touches a corpse, 
no matter whose dead body it is, and does not purify himself, has defiled the tabernacle of Adonai. That person will be cut off from Israel because the water for, pur for purification wasn't sprinkled on him. He will be unclean. His uncleanness is still on him. This is the law. When a person dies in a tent, everyone who enters the tent, everything in that tent will be unclean for seven days. Every open container without a cover closely attached is unclean. And whoever is in an open field and touches a corpse, whether of someone killed by a weapon or of someone who died naturally or the bone of a person or a grave will be unclean seven days. For the unclean person, they are to take some of the ashes of the animal burned up as a purification from sin and add them to fresh water. A clean person is to take a bunch of hyssop leaves, dip it in the water, sprinkle it on the tent, all on all the containers, on the people who were there, and on the person who touched the bone or the person killed or the one who died naturally or the grave. The clean person will sprinkle the unclean person on the third and seventh day, and on the seventh day he will purify him. Then he'll wash his clothes and himself in water, and he will be clean at evening. The person who remains unclean and does not purify himself will be cut off from the community because he's defiled the sanctuary of Adonai. The water for purification has not been sprinkled on him. He's unclean. This is to be a permanent regulation for them. The person who sprinkles the water for purification is to wash his clothes. Whoever touches the water for purification will be unclean until evening. Anything the unclean person touches will be unclean. Anyone who touches him will be unclean until that evening. So much of what we've just read in this chapter previous ones about these elaborate rituals can't help but seem to us moderns as mumbo jumbo sorcery stuff we kind of expect some deep jungle tribes of the Brazilian rainforest to practice and that is because Christians have generally set aside ritual as unimportant unneeded unintelligent almost in the practice of our faith we don't see its value any longer. In fact, unless perhaps we are Catholic or, or, or one of the Eastern Orthodox churches, we don't really like we don't really like it. We aren't comfortable with talking about ritual. But contained within biblical ritual is the visible picture of what's going on in an invisible spiritual realm. Believe me, long before the church was around. Rabbis struggled with the words to explain just why ritual was performed. What actually occurred during these sacred procedures, just like we do today? Did the blood and the body parts of sacrificed animals actually take on supernatural qualities? Did sacred procedures done in exactly the right way in order to create a, a magic-like effect? upon the people of Israel? Does bathing in water and saying all the right words at the right time somehow react with our flesh and our souls so as to remove whatever it is that's contaminated us and offended God in the process? 
So as important as this chapter of Numbers and its details is, so is the need for us to take another step in understanding the biblical principles surrounding ritual purity, or rather ritual impurity. Now I want to begin by quoting a brief story from the Talmud about a famous rabbi who was asked to explain the very issue I just framed for you. Here goes. A heathen questioned Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, saying, the things you Jews do appear to be a kind of sorcery. A cow is brought, it's burned, it's pounded into ash, it's ashes gathered up, and then, when one of you gets defiled by contact with a corpse, two or three drops of the ash mixed with water are sprinkled on him, and he's told, you're cleansed. And Rabbi Yochanan asked the even, has the spirit of madness ever possessed you? And he replied, no. And the rabbi said, have you ever seen a man whom the spirit of madness possessed? And the heathen said, yes. And the rabbi said, and what do you do for such a man? And the heathen replied, well, roots are brought, the smoke of their burning is made to rise up about him, and the water sprinkled upon him until the spirit of madness flees him. And Rabbi Yochanan said, Do not your ears hear what your mouth is saying? It is the same with a man who is defiled by contact with a corpse. He too is possessed by a spirit, the spirit of uncleanness. And scripture says, I will make false prophets as well as the unclean spirit vanish from the land. Now when the heathen left, Rabban Chochanan's disciple said, Our master, you put off that heathen with a mere read of an answer, but what answer will you give us? And he answered, By your lives, I swear. The corpse does not have the power by itself to defile, nor does that mixture of ash and water have the power by itself to cleanse. The truth is that the purifying power of the red cow is the decree from the Holy One. The Holy One said, I've set it down as a statute. I have issued it as a decree. You're not permitted transgress my decree. This is the ritual law. The rabbi is saying, I'm not entirely sure how this whole thing works. But I do know that that red cow has no magical power in itself. I do know that a corpse can't inherently defile anybody. In the end, we do this red heifer purification procedure because God said to do it. And if we do it, he'll count us as purified, and it's just not permitted to do otherwise. It's an issue of obedience, not of magic. So the good rabbi is denying that any kind of sorcery is involved, and he readily admits that it all sure looks like a bunch of mumbo-jumbo pagan exorcism. But it's not. And part of the reason it's not is, is that he says, God has said, 
he will banish unclean spirits from the land of Israel. So it's impossible that a contaminated man could even have an unclean spirit in him. But what also throws the rabbi off, though it's not easily seen in this Talmud story, is that there is a very strange paradox in Numbers 19 about the workings of the red heifer's ashes upon the defiled man who touched the corpse. Let's take a close look at what we call the red heifer sacrifice. Let's see just where that paradox lays. The first thing we notice in verse 2 is that the animal involved is a red cow, which we usually call a red heifer. This is, of course, a female animal. It's young, but older than a yearling, and it has never been used for work. It means it's never been used for a common purpose. It's never been yoked to a plow. This animal must be unblemished, as are all animals designated for ritual slaughter. Next and most importantly, we're told that the red cow must be taken outside the camp to be slaughtered. This represents the first element of the paradox. This red heifer, which is to be used as the primary ingredient in an especially especially important ritual purification concoction, is going to be killed in an unclean place. Recall just what outside camp means. The only ritually clean ground is inside the camp. Inside camp is where the Israelites live. In time, this area became more defined, and actual measurements were assigned to it. City limits, if you would. Do not confuse ritually clean with ritually holy. The only ritually holy ground was within the temple or tabernacle courtyard, which was at the center of the ritually clean camp. So somewhere outside the camp, in an unclean place, a special altar was erected. In point of fact, altar is probably much too strong of a word for it. This was merely a large but common wood fire mound upon which this red cow was killed and burned up. And the general procedure was that a priest of high order, not the high priest, and in our example in Numbers, this was Eleazar, the son of Aaron. He accompanied the red cow to the woodpile and officiated the ceremony. Sometimes the high priest would be involved. It just depended on the era. In any case, the high priest or someone under him, maybe his son, would cut the throat of the cow. Then he would gather some of its blood in a ceremonial vessel. He'd then turn and he'd face the door to the sanctuary with some blood on his finger and he'd sprinkle it towards the sanctuary seven times. Of course, he was a long distance away. So a line of sight had to be established. You see that in this picture. Line of sight had to be established. So he could literally see the door into the holy place, that first chamber inside the sanctuary. And after this entire cow, every part of it was 
burned up hole atop this huge bonfire. While the cow was being burned up, the priest would throw cedar wood, hyssop, sometimes called oregano, and a red-colored thread into it. It was all to be consumed as well. In essence, the wood and the hyssop and the thread were kind of being added to the mixture. And upon completing his task, the priest had to remove his priestly garment and he had to bathe in water. And after putting on fresh garments, then he could re-enter the camp. But he remained, we're told, in a ritually unclean state till the sunset, indicating the end of the current day and the beginning of the next. Whoever assisted him in this operation also had to remove and wash their garments, take a bath, and they too remained in a state of impurity till the sun went down. Next, a man who had not participated in any of the ritual up to this point, so he was still ritually clean, was to gather up all the ashes, put them in a designated place where they could then be used to combine with water and so make this special purification liquid for use as was needed. This man who gathered the ashes became defiled. So, as with all others involved, he had to wash his clothes. He had to take a bath, and he had to remain in an unclean state until the sun went down at the end of the day. Because the level of impurity, of contact with death, usually meaning human death, was so great, it could not only defile whoever or whatever touched it, it could even defile whoever or whatever was in close proximity to it. However, that which actually came into contact with the dead body was contaminated with a greater degree of impurity than whatever was merely nearby it. The remedy for this impurity caused by a dead body was this mixture of ashes from the red heifer and water. The mixture was sprinkled on the home or the building where this person died. He was also sprinkled on whoever came into contact with that person. The sprinkling procedure occurred twice. The first time was on the third day after the defilement. The second time was on the seventh day after the defilement. The defiled persons who had been properly sprinkled were then returned to a ritually pure status at the end of the seventh day, at which time they washed their clothes, clothes and they bathed. Now, this was no light matter. Anyone who became defiled from a corpse and didn't go through this ritual procedure was cut off. We talked about this term, cut off, correct, in Hebrew. You can go a review of previous lessons for more information about it. In a nutshell, generally a person who was cut off, correct, lost his relationship with the people of Israel and more importantly, the God of Israel. A critical question arises, why such a severe penalty? The answer for this drastic consequence is near the end of verse 20. The person who has been defiled by a dead body and refuses God's provision to be made clean, we're told, has defiled the Lord's sanctuary. God's holiness has been endangered. There is nothing more high-handed 
than to bring defilement into the dwelling place of Jehovah. Now keep that in front of your mind. Continue on, because we're going to revisit that. So to end the chapter, we're next told that the person, the clean person, who did the sprinkling of the ash and water mixture onto the defiled person, now finds himself in an unclean state. So now he, of course, has to wash his clothes, take a bath, wait until the sun goes down. New day. Even more, anyone who is currently ritually clean and even touch a, touches a drop of the special purification water, they become unclean. And whoever or whatever touches that unclean person, they become unclean. And this is the completion of the Red Heifer story. Let me begin the examination of this, I think, startling, kind of perplexing chapter at its end. Notice that just as in the previous chapter concerning holiness, that holiness could be inadvertently transmitted from one thing made holy to another thing. It's the same thing with impurity. Impurity can be inadvertently transmitted from one thing made unclean to another, whether it is objects or whether it's people. Now I remind you what I said at the outset today. You can be uncomfortable with this. You can even not like it very much. But here it is in black and white. We just read it. This isn't an interpretation. This isn't taken from Hebrew traditions. This is not human commentary. This is the Bible. Therefore, we're obligated to deal with it as it is, not try to wish it away. So here we go. The dictionary says that a paradox is a situation or a statement that seems contradictory, not believable, or just absurd. And yet, it's very likely true. It's factual. And the paradox of the red heifer sacrifice is this. Everybody that has anything to do with its preparation, death, burning up, gathering up its ashes, they all become unclean. I mean, did you catch that? People who are exactly following God's commandment and the law the ritual law of purification, they begin in a clean state but wind up becoming ritually impure for doing it. On the surface, that makes no sense at all. Can it be that we have Jehovah God ordering some holy and or clean people to intentionally become ritually defiled? The unclean person, unclean from touching a corpse, yet is made clean from these same ashes of the red heifer. But the clean persons who perform the ritual and apply the ashes, they're made unclean. You all switch your room. And as the rabbis say about this procedure, the same ashes that purify the defiled defile the pure. How's this possible? I mean, this is so completely opposite from all the other sacrifices and their effects. The other sacrifices atone. Often they make clean. Typically, 
Handling a sacrifice properly automatically brings a measure of holiness with it. In fact, the average citizen has to turn his sacrifice over to the priest to be put onto the brazen altar because only the priest is holy enough to get near the altar. Even the animal is considered holy, a higher status than just being clean. The moment the worshiper determines to offer it as a sacrifice, otherwise it wouldn't be even allowed into the holy precinct. So what gives here? Well, one of the difficulties in grasping the red heifer sacrifice, the regular temple sacrifices, all the accompanying temple rituals is defining the term holy. The term holy in Hebrew is kodesh or kadosh. And it simply means to be separated away or set apart for a purpose. When my wife is getting ready to do laundry, she carefully separates types of materials as well as light versus dark colored loads. It is perfectly within the meaning of Kadosh or Kadesh to apply that Hebrew term to her separation, or rather to her separating one kind of color or cloth from another. Now, did she make a dark load holy and the light load something else? No. It's the context of the use of the term Kadosh or Kadesh that matters. It is used in a, is it used in a spiritual religious context or in some other context? A person could be Kadosh for destruction. They could be Kadesh for Satan. But both of these things are negative. Remember, holy is not a Hebrew word. It's an English word. It's an English word that's been used as a translation for the Hebrew Kodesh or Kadosh. It's only when something is Kadosh for God, separated away for service to the Lord, then it carries with it the sense of holy as we think of holy. So the red heifer isn't so much holy, it's just kadosh. It's just set apart. But it's set apart not for service to God. Like in a standard temple sacrifice, it's set apart for destruction. But this destruction is going to be used by God to make his people clean again. So it would be a mistake to apply the term holy as it's thought of in Christianity to this red heifer. Now another key to understanding the red heifer ritual is to notice that the Torah calls this particular sacrifice in Hebrew a hat'at. If you've been studying with me for a while, this is not the first time you've heard that Hebrew term hat'at. That is, the red heifer ritual belongs in a general classification of sacrifices of the Hata'at category. And recall that early in our Leviticus study, we spent a lot of time with the various classifications of sacrifices, and each had their own God-ordained purpose. They're very deep and complex, so I'll only talk about the parts of the Hata'at sacrifice that are pertinent to the, pertinent to the red heifer ritual. Most Bible translators will render the Hebrew term hatat as sin offering. But that is ambiguous and misses the purpose of it. 
better translated as purification offering. In other words, while it may well be a sin that eventually leads to the need for this hot to the effect of the hot to is to decontaminate, to purify. In the standard hot to sacrifice, the flesh of the animal may not be eaten, and the animal must be burned up outside the camp, just as with the red heifer ritual. But there are significant differences between the red heifer kind of hot-to-hot sacrifice and the rather standard one. For instance, the blood taken, uh, the, the blood of the, I mean, the blood of the red heifer is not removed and then splashed on the altar. Rather, the blood of the red heifer remains in the cow. It's not drained away. So all that's burned up as part of the ashes. This is because a bedrock principle of the sacrificial system is that blood is central to the entire process. The hata'at, the regular Levitical purification offering, is a most unique sacrifice because one of its effects is to make its handlers and its officials impure. And of course, what we we find that exact thing also applies to the red heifer ritual here in Numbers 19. I mean, what a strange thing. What could possibly be the reason that God would design a sacrifice that generates impurity? Well, here's the reason for it. The sacrificial animal, in our case, it's the red heifer, purifies by means of effectively absorbing the defiled person or object's impurities. The hata'at animal sacrifice behaves like a spiritual sponge. And since the, the, the hata'at sacrificial animal serves its purpose by soaking up the certain types of contamination it was meant to absorb, it now becomes contaminated with an enormous amount of impurity, so it has to be destroyed. It is so dangerously impure, it has to be destroyed away from anything holy. It even has to be away from anything clean. The camp of Israel is clean. So it can't be offered up on the holy altar. It has to be destroyed far away from anything holy on a common fire outside the camp. In fact, technically, the hot dog sacrifice isn't offered up to God. It's set apart for a purpose. It is kadosh for a purpose. But that purpose is not to be set apart for God. Only things set apart for God, kadosh for God, can be offered to the Lord. Now, the concept of set apart for common purposes versus set apart for God also comes into play with the use of the fire that's used to burn up this animal. The fire of the brazen altar is a divinely positive kind of fire. It transforms. It purifies because it is used to offer up the smoke to the Lord. The common wood fire that consumes the red heifer is only meant to destroy it. 
it's meant to just get rid of it. Rid of whatever's put on it. Because what's on it's dangerous and defiled. It's not unlike the burning up, the careful burning up of medical waste. Now, we recently discussed that God's holiness is so powerful, kind of like nuclear radiation, that everything that comes near to it is irradiated with holiness and so attains a measure of holiness itself. It's that same kind of effect with the red cow becomes so full the worst sorts of impurities from soaking up the defilement from others that everything that comes near it, every object, every human, they are irradiated with uncleanness. Now, I want to point out something else quite unique about this red heifer sacrifice. It is not the one who performs the ritual sacrifice who gets the benefit of it. In fact, it is the same way for any Hata'at category of sacrifice. The blood of the animal is not used to purify the worshiper or to atone for him. That is, in the regular Hata'at sacrifice, the blood of the animal is splashed on the altar and in certain instances on other sanctuary furnishings because the animal blood is performing a purification function. In the red heifer sacrifice, the blood of the animal is left in the animal, so it just becomes part of the ashes. And when all that's mixed with water, that winds up being splashed on the person who is in need of decontamination and purification. In other words, the foundational purpose of the standard Hata'at sacrifice is to use the blood of the animal for the purpose of purifying the sanctuary tabernacle or temple and all of its sacred objects it's not used to purify the one who brings the offering and it's not offered up to God now let me put a couple of pieces together for you recall now what it says in verse 20 that if anyone does not purify themselves with the red heifer, red heifer ashes with water from the uncleanness of death, because they touched a dead body, they will be cut off. They will have their relationship with the congregation of Israel ended. They will have their relationship with God terminated. Why this severe penalty? Because the consequence of a person contracting uncleanness from a corpse is it defiles God's sanctuary. It is the defilement of God's sanctuary that's the issue. Therefore, it is the defilement of God's sanctuary that has to be remedied. Bottom line to all this, the ashes of the red heifer, when mixed with living water, are designed to purify the sanctuary of God. And it has also long been understood in Judaism that the people of God are in some mysterious way also sanctuaries of God. See, this concept's not a new Christian invention. That's their only use. No wonder the good rabbi in our story had such a hard time explaining just why ashes that were obviously meant to purify the temple of God were for some elusive reason also used in a ritual to purify a human being from the worst contamination there was. From contamination caused 
by contact with death. The rabbi didn't understand what we now know in hindsight, that eventually, once the Messiah had finished up giving up his life to atone for ours, that God would abandon the sanctuary that men had made for him and make men, humans, his new sanctuary in a fully literal way. The ritual picture that emerges here is to connect the sanctuary of God with humans. Are we not told that as believers, we are now the temple of God? And indeed, does not the Holy Spirit, who is God, literally live within these fragile tents that we call bodies? Then these tents must be purified and cleansed to be suitable for God to dwell there. Further, just like for the ancient tabernacle and temple, simply being in proximity to people and in contact with people and existing in a defiled world means that the sanctuary is going to be under constant bombardment of impurity. So a regular purging of those impurities is mandatory. Recall Yeshua's crucifixion. When the Roman soldier wanted to determine that Jesus was actually dead, or maybe he just passed out, he reached up with a spear and he pierced his side. And what flowed out? Blood and water. Blood we would expect. Why water? Because blood atones, but water purifies. And both actions are needed for us. Blood removes sin. Water removes uncleanness. Two different things. Two different spiritual elements. But our Savior Yeshua was sufficient for both. What was the purification mixture of Numbers chapter 19? Blood and water. The blood was in the ashes, was left in the cow, and burned up. Blood and water. The blood in the ashes of the red heifer, mixed with the water of purification, applied to a person contaminated with death. We'll continue with this next time. Okay, there we have uh, part one of Numbers chapter 19 with Tom. Let me just um, go over something here. That was just part one? Yeah, I think he is. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I think it's part one. It's beauty stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. I like where he ended up, okay? I like how he ended up, how he connected it to Messiah, because this is the key point here. The red heifer, if there's nothing you, there's only one thing you take away from all this. The red heifer, like so many other of these rituals, point to Yeshua, the Messiah. But I need to, we need to look carefully at, at something that Tom taught, that I want to put a little finer point on it. He said in this slide, he said the purpose of the red heifer ashes 
and water is to purify the sanctuary. And before he said that, he had us look at verse 20, right? The person who remains unclean and does not purify himself will be cut off from the community. Why? Because he has defiled the sanctuary of Adam. So the person is cut off because he has defiled a sanctuary. True, that's true. The question is, and, and I think this is the way Tom presented it, the, the sprinkling of the ashes in the water purifies the sanctuary, or does it purify the unclean person? And the text is clear. Over and over and over it, it says, uh, where is verse 20 right there? Because he is defiled, the water of purification has not been sprinkled on him. He is unclean. He is unclean. So the sprinkling is done on the person or object that is unclean to make it clean again, to to uh, remove its defilement. Okay. But Thomas is correct in saying that that person's defilement has already defiled the sanctuary. And my question to you is, how? How was, does this person who's been, uh, who's come in contact with death from one way or the other, how, how, how has just his contact with death defiled the sanctuary? He is defiled. The, script, uh, the, the, you know, the, the written Torah tells us that. He's defiled. He's unclean. But how does that defile the sanctuary? Anybody? Sorry, I didn't see the hands. Let me look at the hands. Oh, so the hand is down again. So Shan doesn't want to hands. Anybody wants to take a guess? How does somebody like you know, you know, how how does somebody who contacts death in a situation like what we're looking at here in nineteen, in chapter nineteen, how does his impurity um, defile the sanctuary? Is it because he's unclean still? Exactly. Exactly. He is still unclean. Yah gave instructions to what to do if you come in contact with death. In fact, he gave instructions on what to come in con- uh, if you come in contact with any kind of uncleanness, right? We've seen that before. Even it's a, from giving birth, you become unclean. You know, um, sexual relations, any, any um, discharge from the body, you know, also makes you unclean. And that uncleanness also defiles the sanctuary. And how does it happen? Because much of that uh, uncleanness comes about in the camp. In the camp. Tom likes to make a, a point of saying that in the camp is clean. In the camp is supposed to be clean. Ideally, it's supposed to be clean. But hey, guess what? Life happens. People die. When? Anybody? When? On the one time a year where Yom Kippur, that's why it says in the Hebrew, Yom Kippurim, it's the atonement, it's the removal of the, all their impurities built up through the sin of the people, sin, sin defiles the temple as well too, right, uh, uncleanness of the people, and Yah's dwelling presence in their midst, right, it had to be cleaned up once a year, at least, once a year, I'm sorry, not more than once a year, or else Yah's presence couldn't remain in the camp. They'd become too defiled. He'd have to leave. His holiness, as Tom says, would be threatened. His set-apartness would be. He'd become like common, like them, defiled. And that couldn't happen, so he'd leave. He'd have to leave. That's why the Yom Kippur thing was so vital.
to remove all that cleanliness, all that uncleanness that the people got just from living their lives, basically, being human beings. It couldn't be helped, right? You're going to give birth. You know, you got all these people living together. Somebody's going to get pregnant, you know, and just the very act of getting pregnant makes you defiled. Having a child gets you defiled. You know, all that stuff. It's just life. And, and, and that's how the temple becomes defiled. And how it gets purified is through the Yom Kippur offerings, right? The blood purifies. And that's why in Hebrews, if we look at Hebrews, he connects this nicely for us in Hebrews. I think it's Hebrews chapter 9. Let's see. chapter 9 um, where he talks about maybe I got the wrong reference here no it is, it is chapter 9 yeah oh yeah here it is he, he, and he tells us you're cleaning the flesh he tells us he, look at verse 13 of Hebrews chapter 9 for if the sprinkling of ceremonially unclean persons with the blood of goats and bulls, and what? The ashes of a red heifer. He's talking about this thing we're looking at here. Restore their what? Outer purity. Their outward purity. Then he says, I like how uh, he says this here in the con- complete uh, Jewish Bible. Then how much more the blood of the Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself to God as a sacrifice to the bears, sorry, will purify our conscience from works that lead to death. So he's saying the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of the ashes of the heifer, it does purify the flesh. But Yeshua's sacrifice is so much greater, it purifies the inward parts. You're conscious, you're, 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 you know, you're, you're conscious, the inward parts of you. From what? From works that lead to death so that we can serve the living God. Like his, it, this just shows you how much Yeshua accomplished for us. The red heifer sacrifice worked for that. It removed the uncleanness from off the people. But it didn't remove that conscience of consciousness of, of, uh, of death, of works that lead to death. But Yeshua's sacrifice has done that for us. We're clean from the inside out because of Yeshua's sacrifice. And that's the kind of clean, cleanliness that, that is needed to really draw close to God. Thanks for Yeshua. We couldn't do that without him. Hallelujah. And so uh, that's why I like where Tom ended up. I'm going to shut up now and give <laughs> and give you folks a chance to jump in here. Sorry for taking so long. Who wants to? Sharon. Um, you answered the question. Um, I was going to ask pertaining to us today um, with being, so we're just all walking around unclean, but then when you said Yeshua, because Yeshua died, his blood atoned for our sins and to cleanse us. Yeah. Um, as as we are in this state now, um, today. Like, yes. Yeah. 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 All the things that defiled the body before defiles the body now. Nothing's changed. It can't change. Right. right. All, the things, all the things, you know, the childbirth, the death, the whole, all of it. And here, Yeshua yeah. raises it even to a higher level. He says, uncleanness is also caused by things that come out of you. Because he said, from out of the heart comes what? murmurs and adulteries and all these evil that comes out of the heart he says those are the things that defy you so we so even those things that angry thought against your brother or your sister or whatever that defiles you we got to recognize and he said hey you gotta 
he taught us, he taught the Levites, right, to discern between the clean and the unclean. We need to recognize in our lives when we've contacted uncleanness, right, just from being out in the world, doing normal things, or things that may, you know, come out of us, right? And we need to claim the blood of Yeshua. You can say the, you can say the waters of purification if you want. The blood of Yeshua purifies. It cleans these temples from the uncleanness that we incur in our daily livings. And if you forget to do it, then we have the Yom Kippur ritual to do every once a year. But in all that, you have to believe and have faith for oh, all yeah. that to work. They had faith, right? Yeah. Yeah. It, this, this worked for them because they had faith. Yah said it, it must be so. I have faith. And this is what applies to us today. Yah said it, we have faith. It works exactly like that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I, um, I, I was glad when he um, explained um, the intrinsic holiness of God. I mean, the whole, the whole thing just made more sense then because I always wondered about the red heifer and when he went in to explain it because I was wondering, well, I thought the, the red heifer was... Um, to do with pure, pure uh, purification, uh, so I was wondering why it had to be killed outside of the camp. But he did a good yeah. job in explaining and bringing it all together. So yeah. all my yeah. questions are nil and void because yeah. 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 And and you brought up that point there outside the camp. The red heifer had to be killed outside the camp. Where was our Messiah Savior killed? Outside. Outside the camp. Yeah. So everything just ties in. Yeah. Right back to your Beautiful. Yeah. 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 Uh, thank you, Sharon. Any other questions, comments, thoughts you'd like to share with us? Uh, I still see Sharon's hand. Uh, Rochelle. Hey, Shabbat Shalom again. Um, I, I this is another lesson that must be repeated because there were so many things yeah. that were um, pretty um, uh, heavy, I think. Yeah. And, and I right. think that, yeah, it, it definitely, yeah, it, it, uh, it calls for another listening. Um, there are, I have more questions than comments. Uh, my comments were, First of all, I laughed so much on that uh, slide when he talked about maturity and he gave oh. that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I just imagined, like, you know, you see this six-year-old man <laughs> in kindergarten or in, like, you know, grade six. And I was like, with Malachi, for example, you know, and I'm like, <laughs> that's exactly what it is. And so I, I loved I loved the analogy. It was really well done. Um, uh, you know, slide five when he talks about how Western Christianity sees ritual as unintelligent, and and we've had this discussion, so I'm not going to repeat that. Um, yeah, he did a great job explaining how and why the red heifer was was um, sacrificed outside the camp. And, and I think I remember from a previous uh, lesson how from where Yeshua was was uh, sacrificed, they could see the uh, the Holy of Holies. I'm, I'm not sure about that, but I think I had heard him. Uh, my questions are, when he talked about the, where was that? 
talked about Kadosh and Kodesh, and he was trying to explain how the, the red heifer is set apart for destruction, not for Yah. So I got that. Okay, I just got that now. Okay, only when Kadosh. Uh, so he's saying so. So he, okay. So he's saying that Kadosh or Kodesh means set apart, right? It just means set apart. Yeah. But it, it okay. So now I get it. Okay, I think while I was while he was talking, I just didn't get it. So he's saying it's it's about the context, you know. If yeah. that determines whether or not okay. Whereas holy is only used for the divine, right? Yeah. No. No. Okay. He was careful. He was careful to say that holy is an English word, right? Right. The word that's used in the original language Hebrew is kadosh or some derivative of it, right? Kadosh, kadesh, whatever it may be. That's the word that's used in the Hebrew. When we translate it over into English, for example, when it's speaking about set apart to Yah, set apart to God, set apart for His purpose, we put it as holy. We put it as holy. There are other times, we covered this last week, there are other times where the same word appears in the scriptures. We don't translate it as holy because we have it, we, we in the West, or in English speakers at least, have a different mindset about holiness, right? Mm-hmm. We, we understand its connection to godliness. Um, um, but kadosh can also refer to things that are just set apart for destruction, as Tom pointed out, things mm-hmm. that are under mm-hmm. the band. They're set apart for destruction. Mm-hmm. Or just... Um, you know, that so. is, yeah, right. Yeah. That's really good. I, 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 that was very well done. I think yeah. uh, in my mind, Kadosh was always, always for the holy. No. You know? no. Right. And he made that very clear. And I'm yeah. glad that's, that's how I all, always viewed Kadosh, you know, but it's not, you know, this is a clear example yeah. of what is not. So my next few questions are from slides 12, 13, 14. I don't think I understood anything of what he was talking about in the hatat um yeah if you could explain that because oh i i was like what what is he talking about um and then uh slide 14 i think i got glimpse uh, you know i, I caught some uh, yeah I, I understood some things but not everything although i really like the uh, radiation um Technology. However, I'm like, we as people, because we are Kadosh, right? We are set apart. So does that mean, you know, when we go out in the world, um, what, what, how does that translate to us? You know, how can we apply that to, to us as we go about, you know, carrying out our lives as Kadosh people? Um, uh, yeah. If he says God's holiness is so powerful, and proximity brings holiness, I'm like, mm. so anyway, I'm gonna leave that to you to explain all that. So yeah, I um I kind of covered a lot of this uh, last week. Um, I was asleep, remember? Huh? Yeah, <laughs> you were asleep. <laughs> you were asleep, right? We found out after that you were out of it. I totally um, but I'm gonna go over it very quickly. I don't even know if I can go over it. But let me just um, let me just Please. deal with the slides you said. You said this was a slide that you had an issue with? So 12, 13, 14, I just didn't, yeah, there was many things that I didn't understand. So what what on this slide, 12, that you'd like me to just try and... 
explain. Uh, so he says that, okay, well, first of all, I know you disagree with his take on Hatat being a purification offering. I don't. I don't. Um, the, the word Hatat, he says Hata'a, but it's in the Hebrew right. Hatat. It actually is always translated as sin or sin offering. However, what it does is when it's applied to the altar, whether it's the altar outside or into the on the altar or sprinkled on sprinkled um, towards the the veil inside, it's pure is performing a purification function. So you know, I don't disagree with that. Hatat means sin. Sin defiles, and and the blood purifies. So I still see it's quite okay to call it a sin offering, but it's not wrong to say that's a purification offering because that's what it does. In essence, oh, okay. it purifies okay. the stain that sin left behind, right? So, um, and he's, he's also right, this red heifer, it tells us right in the text, it's a kind of a sin offering. It's different from the other sin offerings. Number one, it's a female. Number one, it's red. Number two, it's red. Um, many, many differences between the two. The other ones were sacrificed inside. This one is sacrificed outside, completely outside, right? A lot of, a lot of things. It has some things in common with the, um, the purification from a leper. If you recall the whole bit with the two birds and the running water and you set one bird free. It has a lot, because that's outside yeah. the camp as well too, right? Yeah. So those yeah. two are connected. And it's also connected with the Yom Kippur um, uh, sacrifice of the Gopha Azazel, right? He is, you know, the sins of the people are put on him and he's taken outside the camp and sent away yeah. outside the camp. There's a connection between those three there. And again, for, you know, we're not going to go in, out in all detail, but Yeshua fulfills each and every one of those in a, in a beautiful, beautiful way. So it is a sin offering. Uh, it does, you know, somehow the sprinkling of this solution on the person purifies them, and somehow the person doing the sprinkling becomes contaminated. That's just the way it is. Yeah, says so, right? Um, he, Tom said some things about inside the camp and outside. Inside the camp is clean. Outside the camp is unclean. Not necessarily. I mentioned just earlier. Inside the camp could be unclean because death happened inside the camp, right? The tent became unclean inside the camp. So inside the camp could have unclean places. In fact, it often did. Outside the camp also had clean places. The ashes were, of this red heifer were to be stored where? In a clean place outside the camp. The sin offerings that were burnt up outside the camp were burnt up in a clean place outside the camp. Uh, the ashes from the that were that were when you cleaned out the, the the altar once a day, the ashes were taken to a clean place outside the camp. Some places of the outside the camp were clean. Um, a spiritual sponge. He talked about here in this next one. I I didn't really have any. Right. I think. Yeah. It, it was a. I, I think I, I can see it now. It was more yeah. of a continuation of, yeah, of the yeah. hatat. So now it, it, yeah, it becomes clear. He just said it must be destroyed. Yeah, so I got yeah. that. Okay. And the altar fire transforms and purifies fire. Yeah, he talked about that. Yeah, a common wood fire is for destruction. That I'm not sure, but... Yeah, I think that, yeah, now... 13 makes more sense now that you've explained 12. Okay. But 14, so, yeah, that's... So, yeah, that's in 14, so, like, I, I think I talked about this one here, right? The purpose of the red heifer is to purify the sanctuary. So, I, I you know, I don't... I, the purpose of the red heifer is to re remove the uncleanness caused by death 
from the people or from objects. And if that isn't done, if the person doesn't do that, then they are cut off because they continue basically to defy Yah. Yah is in their midst, and he says, "This is what you have to do if you come in contact. You're unclean. You know, you're in you're in my vicinity. If you don't do this, it's like an open def- open you know rebellion against Yah, against His holiness. So you're cut off. Um, I think that's the only thing I didn't mention from before." What, what, uh, the bit about My the question. radiation. Yeah. yeah. And, and in relation to us as his people who are Kadosh and oh. you know, uh, proximity can bring holiness. So, yeah, I don't, I don't, and I, I spoke about this last week. I'm not so fond of the way that's the way he puts it. You know, this proximity can bring holiness. I think it's actually the other way around. Uh, holiness brought in, un- in, the, in the presence of common things, let's put it that way, becomes, it loses some of its holiness. Yes, it becomes exactly. more commonplace, right? It's not set apart as much anymore. That's the thing about guarding the holiness, right? It's not so much that it makes other things holy. I think other things uh, det- uh, detract from its holiness. You know, in a very simple explanation, as I, I think I said this before, um, if you've got some special set-apart clothes that you only wear for a certain particular occasion, and then you start wearing it just for everything you do, you know, you're going shopping, you're going here, you're going there, it's not really set-apart anymore, is it? It becomes commonplace. It loses its set-apartness. In the same way, this this business about holiness and the proximity of, of uh, uncleanness or even non-holiness can be, you can, it can lose its sanctity. That's how I see it. Um, yes. Yeah. Which is why I was confused, and I, yeah, I was like, okay. So what is? But how does that? Like for us, we are his people. We are his kadosh people, right? Yeah. And we, we are on. We are walking around in this earth. We're mingling with people who are not kadosh, and how, how does, you know, is it? So if we are holy. Yeah. Because he likes to say that um, holiness or holy, what was his word, like contracts, you, you contract holiness by, by touching it, and it's trans, trans, transmissible, yeah. right? He likes to say that. So yeah. h- how does that, you know? Yeah, um, that's, I, I got, you know, he brought that up on a previous, um, on last week's lesson about how the wife can transmit holiness to the husband. I, I I thought I debunked that pretty well. Oh, Um, well, I wasn't, yeah, I was. So, we can go over that, uh, just you and me. I got a lot of folks here waiting to ask questions. All right, no problem. So, um, we'll we'll talk about that later in the week, okay, Rochelle? Yep, sounds good, thank you. Great. Lloyd. So, it won't be long, but, you know, I just like the way old Tom ended. Um, yeah. By summing up everything here, he said that um, he was talking about the the heifer, which was burnt up with its blood in it. Yeah. And that water, when sprinkled on one, somebody, it would cleanse them, who, someone who was uh, ritually pure. And then he said, uh, from Messiah's side came the blood and the water. And now uh, he summed it up, he said, um, uh, blood atones and water purifies. You yeah, know? and 
you know, like I always say that, you know, what happened when Messiah was crucified? Uh, it, it cannot be completely <laughs> understood. It's a lot happened there, but yeah. bits by bits, bit by bit, we get these, you know, these uh, uh, truth, you know, uh, or, or um, explanation of, of, of what happened there, you know. So, yeah. um, that was really, um, you, you know, uh, um, revealing to me when he said that, when he, when he, when he said that, you know. Yeah, yeah. And um, you hear Messiah Yeshua talk all, uh, that um, those who believe in him out of out of their inwards part will flow rivers, rivers of living living water. water living water yes living yes. water yes 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 the living water that purifies and the blood that yes. atones both are necessary right lloyd the blood yes. and the water and john makes a, a a point of drawing our attention to that right in the, in his gospel there beautiful beautiful uh linda Uh, do you, I just had a, a one point, and I, I, I'm going back to last week's um, teaching. You know, when Jesus was washing the feet of his disciples, and he took water, and he just washed their feet, you know, it's like, it reminds us that, uh, and when Peter tells him that, you know, wash all of me, he says, no, you don't have to be washed, all of you, because you're already clean. Yeah. Um, you know, that statement itself is very pregnant with meaning, uh, with meaning because uh, and it comes with this approximation uh, coming close to this uh, to the messiah and so they were they were just being set apart but uh, the the part of their body that was always mingling in the uh, in the earth was their feet and so he had to wash them and uh, so that water again is um, is symbolic of um, the purification, the setting apart, you know, the, the purification purpose. And uh, strangely enough, um, um, that is, uh, you know, still practiced in uh, many other religions, even till today, even though they don't believe in the Messiah, but they have a practice where they, when they come in contact with things that contaminate them, and 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 then they set themselves they purify themselves and then they set themselves apart till that 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 seven day process it's very un, very very strange because it's the same seven day process you know and um so the uh, when you look at um, this uh, ritual to us it seems like we don't understand jesus said told peter he says you will never understand what i'm doing now but we will understand, and we are understanding it now that day by day we are being made more and more and more like him from glory to glory to glory. So that that purification, the sanctification process is still going on. Absolutely. Absolutely. So right, uh, Linda. Uh, Cindy, I'm going to give you the last word and then we're going um, to have to close it off. Go ahead, please, Cindy. Thank you very much. I'm just going to go here to my notes. Um, I was just uh, in the confirmment and agreement with the sentiments of the study for today, the holiness versus separation or set apart. 
Um, I've been doing some independent studies uh, the past couple of weeks, and it brought me back to Genesis from the beginning and trying to understand and um, reading it in its uh, Hebrew or Aramaic um, original really gave me or uh, opened my eyes and gave me such great understanding in regards to like the difference between separation and holiness and um, like on the first day um, when God created um, the first day he separated light from day but it doesn't make the first day holy um, he sanctified and separated um, the Sabbath day the last day um, and uh, in regards to um, Sister Rachel's uh, comments in regards to what we're supposed to do as holy people um, in an unclean world and going to, you know, spread the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, um, that, you know, the, per, uh, the prescription in Matthew and Mark, um, that was given in regards to when we're supposed to testify and, um, bring the gospel when people refuse, um, hearing the word of the Lord, um, that, you know, this proximity to holiness, even like the dust of the of that of the wherever you've left the, the destination that you you're now leaving because they've rejected the word you're supposed to shake off the dust from your foot as a testimony um when god is looking now you know he sees the dust that you made the attempt the holiness is radiating from you know proximity um to you know the consecration the consecrated person who has gone to do the work of god um and just that the great commission um to go with the gospel in holiness as God is holy, um, that, uh, we're supposed to like the proximity to holiness as, you know, it's different than just the separation, like the distinction between separation and holiness was just, you know, revealed to me in this study as well as last uh, week's study. And I'm just grateful, um, to be able to have the practical application in that sentiment. Yeah, thank, thank you, Cindy. Um, like, this is the quest for all of us, right? How do we, how do we, and thanks, Rochelle, for raising that question in the first place. How do we interact with this world and maintain our set-apart status? And, and I would say that's kind of asking the question the wrong way. The, the question should be, um, in, in maintaining our set-apart status, we interact with the world, not the other way around. I don't know if that explained it well. In other words, we live our lives as holy lives. How do we, how, how, and I mean set apart in that way. How are we set apart? Because we follow the word of Yah. We believe Yah. We trust in Yah. We obey his commandments, his instructions as best we can. That sets us apart and that's how we present ourselves to the world. We are a set-apart people, set-apart for Yah's work. We are his servants, right? The sons and daughters of his servants. And, uh, and we just live our lives like we normally would go about our lives, being cognizant that we are God's people representing him to the world today. And in doing so, we interact with the world. And we contact, we, we contact uncleanness in our daily lives anyway from the world or just from just from living life and then you know at the end of every day it should be incumbent upon us to realize that we've 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 sinned probably we've come in contact with uncleanness and before you put your head down on the pillow you need to just get on your knees and recall 
and think, and then even for the stuff you don't even realize, you know, some repentance, some claiming of the waters of purification and the blood of atonement, that stuff works. It works better than the bulls of the, the blood of bulls and goats. You can just claim it anytime, anywhere. And you can cleanse yourself daily from, from that contamination that we pick up in the world. That's how we maintain our holiness. Because he, his word tells us to do that. This is what happens when you become unclean. Get the cleansing water. Get the purifying blood. You know, claim it. Claim the efficacy of that uh, sacrifice that he made for us. It's available 24-7. So um, that's how we maintain our holiness. Because we can be cleansed daily. Anytime we want from any uncleanness that we come in contact with. Uh, I want to end the conversation there because the time is gone already. We still have to wind up here and, uh, and say a final prayer, which Sharon is going to say for us. I want to thank everybody uh, for their contributions today. This was great. This is one of the... Uh, it seems like every session is getting better than the last. But this is really good. I really enjoy your comments, your questions, your contributions. Thank you so much. I'm learning so much from you guys. It's amazing. But now we must sadly end it. And uh, yeah, willing, we'll see you tomorrow, most of you. If not, then uh, next Shabbat. Um, Sharon, take some prayer requests while I queue up our closing song. Sharon, can you pray for my neighbor, Bill, and his mother-in-law? Her name is Jean. What's the issue? Bill is dying. He's been given 11 months to live. And I need to witness to him, but I haven't had a chance yet. And today, while we were in service here, I was called over next door to help the mother-in-law off the, off the ground. She fell. So um, just so that, and she's on blood thinners. So I just want to make sure that she's okay. Just, just to pray for Jean as well. This is Richard. Um, uh, I, I just have to remind you offered prayers for my healing. Let you know that I am fully restored. And, uh, Hallelujah. Praise God. Praise God. Hallelujah. Praise God for his goodness to our brother Richard. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Thank you all. And, um, yes, I do thank the good Lord for his mercies and kindnesses. And I'd like to also say that I am. Um, I have a furnished room for rent. If anybody knows anybody who needs a room, uh, 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 just to throw that out. Thanks. Okay. okay. Beautiful. Where do you live, Richard? Yeah. Dunnings and Shepherd. Okay. Across from the room all. Okay. All right. That's the location in case they Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Uh, any other prayer requests? Yeah. Can I add um, to mine? Can I? Can I just to say? Yeah. I want to give God thanks because for my healing as well because I'm back. Hallelujah. So Amen. my back is so much better. So I want to give God thanks and for all the prayers. Thank you, Father. Hallelujah. Thank you, Abba. Hallelujah. Back and restoring Praise her yeah. to health. Hallelujah. Thank you, Amen. Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you. Um, Shelly, how is um, how is um, Florence. Florence doing? Do you know? Do you have a report for Florence? Is Shelly still here? No, she's not. Oh, yeah, she, she is. is. She, she is. is. Yeah, she is. Last we heard, 
Shelly? Yeah, so Shelly told um, Claudia earlier this week that um, she's in ICU. Florence is in the hospital. She's in ICU. Apparently, she's tested positive. So we just want to share and just mention um, Florence in prayer, in your prayer as well, too. Florence is in her 90s, right? 96. She's 96. And she's been a healthy 96, trust me. Mm-hmm. Looks very good for her age. Those of yeah. you who know her know what I'm talking about. But yeah. uh, sadly, she's... Uh, She's taken ill, had to be taken to the hospital where she is now. So let's lift her up in prayer as well, too. Sharon, can you please pray for uh, um, these two brothers, Amun and uh, Kaiser Ayub? Uh, they are still they are persecuted Christians facing the death penalty in Pakistan. And for my sister-in-law who fell down and broke her hip, uh, she's uh, out of the hospital now and she's in rehab. Uh, she's, uh, you know, like 73 years old. So just to make sure that she recovers and recovers well, because she takes care of my, my brother who has been like sick for a very, very long time. So would you please pray for them? Karen. I also have a request for a 92-year-old. I'm on my way there now. Her name is Trudy. She's a fairly healthy 92-year-old believer, but she has a carotid artery, and it's uh, about 75%, and it's causing a lot of dizziness and imbalance. But they um, they don't want to operate because of her age, but she seems to want it. So just pray God's will be done for Trudy. Thank you. Uh, Sharon, in the same line as uh, Linda, yeah, if you could just remember the persecuted uh, brothers around the world. Yes, always. Yes, always. Uh, Linda, uh, I didn't catch the name. You said Amon, and what was the other name? It's it's Amon, A-M-O-O-N, and Kaiser. Q... U A I S E R, and their surname is Ayub. How did they? Amun and Kaiser. And Kaiser. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Okay, folks. Uh, uh, could, oh, thanks for that. Hello. Could you uh, pray for my mother, please? She's in the hospital still. What's her name? Uh, Rose. And uh, could you pray for John in Haiti and um, the baby that he's taking care of that has AIDS? Thank you. Thanks. And the baby. Baby born with AIDS? Yeah. Yeah. Can you add one more, please, Sharon? A young lady named Maria, she's struggling with mental illness. Okay. Okay, that looks like it. Let's uh, sing this final song and then we'll close out. I have made you too small in my 